Iraq wants military help from America. Is this the solution? Former head of the British Army, General Sir Mike Jackson, says it's tragic. It has proved impossible for the Iraqis to settle their differences by peaceful political means. They've gone back to a violent outcome. The head of NATO says no more defence cuts and the art of the military tattoo. Baghdad has asked the United States to launch airstrikes against the ISIS militants who are seizing territory in northern Iraq. However, the White House has been stressing that the crisis needs a political solution, not a military one. I'm joined today by Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University and our defence analyst Christopher Lee, who joins us via Skype from the University of Perugia in Italy. Hello to both of you. Professor Rogers, this US response, isn't this how all wars start with calls for a political political solution? I think that is certainly the case in many ways, not all, but many ways. But you have huge caution on the part of the Obama administration. They're conscious that once they, once they start any kind of overt, direct, aggressive military action, it's very difficult to know where it will go. There are all the questions about whether it could work. There's a question about how they would get out of it. So I think there's real caution in the White House, in marked contrast to previous administrations. But of course, the United States has been burned very badly psychologically in terms of what happened in both Afghanistan and Iraq and I think this is one of the fundamental reasons why you do have the caution now. That said, uh, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, General Martin Dempsey seems more open to a military response much more so than the politicians. I think this is what one would tend to expect to some extent but I think if you turn mm. the whole if you turn the whole thing on its head it's most likely that this group, this ISIS group actually would want US intervention. They would want US action because they would see that as a propaganda coup and they would then be able to express this entire conflict in much, in much wider global terms. So from their perspective they would like it and that's one very good reason for the start to be very cautious about what one does. Christopher Lee, do you, do you agree with that point that the ISIS would welcome American airstrikes? Yeah, it goes a bit, it goes a bit further because when uh, uh, Martin Dempsey convened um, an, operation, an operational group last January on Iraq, it pointed out that the that ISIS had moved into that area, and effectively, what had happened is that there was no longer a border between Syria and Iraq, because you had the same sort of forces fighting in that area, and same for the same causes, uh, fundamentally Sunni versus uh, Shia. But uh, also, Martin Dempsey is very concerned for the following reason. This is an insurgency conflict at this stage. It's fast-moving insurgents, uh, uh, that is the ISIS, uh, Sonnies, moving at targets all over the place, into cities, into towns. Um, targets will be very hard to locate. It, it, you know, we, we, we tend to think it, it, it's all the technology in the world and Americans will be on top of this. There is no fixed command and control centers, for example, that they could operate against. And there's a high possibility, high possibility of civilian casualties. And Paul was talking about, uh, you know, the ISIS might actually want this. One of the reasons is that uh, Maliki, uh, Prime Minister Maliki, uh, the Prime Minister of Iraq, is not that popular. 
He's trying to work it at the moment to keep his government in control, but he's not that popular. And American intervention would make him even more unpopular. Yeah, and the Americans. And you mentioned there, the, Christopher, the, the, the deep schism between Shia and Sunnis. You're in Perugia, a meeting of military and political studies group on this very subject. Uh, just explain the, the, where this all came from, the very start of it, because it's about the succession of Muhammad, wasn't it? That's right. Muhammad died in 632. Um, there was a conflict of who would be the authority, who would succeed Muhammad. On one side, you've got the Sunnis, and in this case, ISIS are Sunnis, and that was the split of Islam into two branches. So you've got Sunnis, very orthodox guys, um, very formal about the succession process, and <clears throat> this is the largest part of Islam, so that makes it very, very important in terms of... Uh, Truly orthodox, truly orthodox. And we might even call them sort of right wing. Then you've got the Shias. Now, the Iraqi government, mainly Shias. Iran, for example, is about 95 Shia Muslims. And this is the second largest Islamic group. And there these are the followers of Ali. And he was Muhammad's son-in-law. And that was where the split uh, began. And they said, you know, we know who is, who is, should see the importance uh, of Muhammad and the other side, and they said, no, we shouldn't. And this is in 632, and they've been at war at each other's throats ever since. Professor Paul Rogers, uh, Christopher mentioned Iran there, now getting involved in this situation. Is it inevitable, and c can Iran help? I think it is inevitable, and in many ways Iran can help. In fact, the improved relationship between the Iranians and the Americans and a possible improved relationship between the Iranians and the Saudis is one of the very few good bits of news to come out of the region as a whole. Uh, the United States and Iran may seem unlikely bedfellows in this, but each have this perspective of not wanting to have a major Islamist entity, very radical Islamist entity, right at the right end of the spectrum, uh, really holding considerable territory right in the heart of the Middle East. The Iranians can probably, or they may, probably the only people who can influence Maliki to try and be more inclusive within Iraq, which is one of the fundamental it, problems. It's not too late for that, though. Uh, I'm looking to the longer term. It's a question of whether the situation can be reasonably stabilised now. And then slowly, over months and years, you build up a much better relationship with people within Iraq. But I'm not pretending in any way it's going to be easy. But at least the Iranians probably can see that they have a common problem with the United States. Christopher, do, can you think of a key per person this week who can change the course of this conflict? He may have great control. There is one. There's uh, Qasim Soleimani. He commands what we would call the Special Forces uh, uh, Unit of the Iranian Armed Forces. Somebody was telling me last night, uh, uh, just he has been in Baghdad for the past four days. That would suggest either trying to put the Maliki Armed Forces into some sort of control, but suggesting a way in which Iranian forces of some form or other, perhaps his own people, could actually move into Iraq. And don't forget, because they're all Shias, and because the major sh uh, shrines of Shia Islam are in Iraq, Najaf, Kabbalah, Samara, and Baghdad itself, they would come in and say, we are here to protect the religious shrines. Mm, uh, Paul, uh, just tell us a bit more about ISIS, its influence, and where it's spreading to. Well, it is concentrating very much on northeast Syria and northwest Iraq. Uh, 
It's uh, very well organised. It's well resourced. It's far better resourced over the last after the last ten days with far more military equipment, which has been taken through largely to Syria, and also very strong monetary resources. In terms of where it's going, I think, and this may be against what people expect, that it will probably tend to consolidate now. I don't think for a minute it will try and take over Baghdad. It might try, might try a hold on to uh, one or two places. It would like to take over the Balad Air Base. But essentially, it's moving into consolidation. These are very bright, uh, experienced strategists, uh, and they are not going to overstep what they can do. David Cameron has said this week that uh, this threatens the UK directly, suggesting that people will be coming from Iraq to launch attacks in the UK. Do you think? Do you agree, Paul? It's possible, but I think that can be overestimated. It would certainly be much increased if there's American and even British involvement on the military side. Uh, there's a risk of it, but I think this is primarily a regional conflict at present. I can't say it's going to last that way all, all the time, though. Christopher, your thoughts? Two thoughts. I, I agree with Paul about not going into Baghdad. What they're looking to do, it would appear, is to get a grip on the, for example, the refineries. There's one major uh, city which is responsible for the refining of oil and therefore keeps something like 30-odd percent of the north of uh, of Iraq sort of moving on an, on an everyday basis. Um, if they can do that, they would have absolute control. Rather like if you imagine Putin saying, I'm going to cut off the gas supplies in, in, in Ukraine. The other thing is to move into uh, Baghdad. They then spread themselves very fear, uh, thinly. At the moment, they can actually more or less control what they, uh, what they do. Otherwise, if they move up much further, you know, they have much, haven't got the same control. On the question of uh, what, what David Cameron's saying, um, the best bet at the moment is that there are somewhere in region of four, maybe 450 uh, British uh, uh, Muslims in the ISIS force, either in Syria, mostly in Syria, I suspect, and also in in Iraq. Now, there's something called blowback, and the intelligence people call about blowback, meaning that you would get, say, just one, two, three guys um, saying, right, we're going home, i.e. UK, and we're going to make a statement. Mm -hmm. And that can, statement can be sort of madness, such as a soldier in Woolwich, or it can be a railway train. And that is what I think that uh, the National Security Council is briefing the Prime Minister as they did uh, yesterday in London, mm. and that is a possibility. All right, gentlemen, stay with us. One man who understands the situation in Iraq more than most is General Sir Mike Jackson. He was chief of the general staff at the time of coalition troops invading Iraq back in 2003. I spoke to him earlier this week and asked him what he thought Britain's legacy was, was there and if he was still proud of it. I feel proud of what uh, our armed forces and obviously the British Army in particular uh, um, actually carried out. Uh, it is tragic to see what is going on now in Iraq, where it has proved impossible for the Iraqis to settle their differences. And I'm here, the sectarian differences as between Shia and Sunni, by peaceful political means, they've gone back to a violent outcome. Um, it's a tragedy, um, because I've always been of the view that Iraq has enormous potential. Um, it has the two great rivers, its oil, its gas, um, a well-educated, comparatively population. It, it has great potential. And now the concern is, will Iraq hold together as, um, as its borders are at the moment? I think we're into 
some um, very disturbing events now. Given what Britain did in 2003, do you believe that Britain has a responsibility to do something now, be it uh, militarily or not? Well, that's more of a political question than it is a military one. Um, but I would argue that uh, we expended blood and treasure on behalf of helping Iraq to a better future, an opportunity which appears to have been spurned, at least by some. Um, and therein lies, lies an awful tragedy. And therefore, what? Do you think Britain does have a responsibility? I'm not sure we do now, actually. Um, uh, a responsibility is different to... to government's made its position pretty clear, the British government, um, uh, uh, to a new decision as to whether to re-intervene or not um, can be taken on the circumstances as they are now. And we know what the government has said, and, and indeed we know what Washington has said. Um, but I do believe we went to, and when I say we, it's not just Britain, it's the coalition as a whole, we went to um, great lengths to obtain the opportunity for Iraq to have a better future than it had under Saddam Hussein. What we'll never know is, had it not happened, where, where, how would the Arab Spring, so-called, have affected Saddam Hussein's regime? Uh, would Iraq have been immune from the extraordinary upheavals of the Arab Spring? I doubt it. I think we were going to see a very volatile situation anyway. Do you have any concerns that a similar thing might happen in Afghanistan once combat troops withdraw, that there may... There is concern, of course, um, that uh, all the effort, time, trouble, expense that's gone into training uh, the Afghan army um, uh, is actually going to hold um, Afghanistan together uh, should there be um, a repeat of uh, or something of, of the order of what's going on in Iraq now. Uh, I, I can't call that. Um, I know enormous efforts have been made. And there comes a time when um, the outsiders can do little more, if I can put it in that way. Um, it really does depend on the people themselves. That was General Sir Mike Jackson speaking to me earlier this week. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford is still with us. Is he right? Does peace ultimately depend on the people who live there? I think in the case of this sort of conflict, yes, but one also does have to accept that uh, much of the huge increase in intercommunal and interconfessional violence in Iraq stemmed directly from the the occupation primarily by the united states but by others as well it i mean although there was probably several tens of thousands of civilians killed as a result of the intervention it was the internal thing but that was massively exacerbated by the decision to occupy i suppose the question that no one can answer is what might have happened had there not been intervention what the situation would be now christopher um that's absolutely right. I mean, don't forget, for example, that, uh, you know, remember ISIS, that causing the trouble at the moment, are, uh, are Sunni. Um, so is Saddam Hussein. 
He was a Sunni. He was a Sunni from Dekreet. Um, what would be in the position of, 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 of Iraq in the war that went, is going on in Syria? In fact, would it have taken place? But I think the important thing, which I'm not sure the general got around to, uh, to, to laying out, is this. Um, you have to decide where responsibilities, which you asked him about, start and end. The responsibility of the coalition of forces, um, the intervention, was to leave Iraq as a viable security and political unity. It failed to do that. And there is the fundamental cause of what we're talking about today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, soldiers and body art. When, what, and more importantly, where do you get your first tattoo after you sign up? PFBS Sit rep. The NATO Secretary-General has warned members of the alliance it's time to end defence cuts. Anja Sverrasmussen has given a keynote speech in London as he visits for talks with David Cameron. He said the alliance has to build its capabilities to make it more effective, but that can't be done on the cheap. Here he is speaking earlier. Since 2008, Russia has increased its defence spending by around 50%. Increased by around 50%. While, on average, NATO allies have decreased theirs by about 20%. As you know, NATO has an agreed benchmark of 2% of the gross domestic product to be spent on defense. And if all European nations were to meet the 2% spending guideline this year, we would have an extra $90 billion to invest in defense. So it's time to stop the defense cuts, to start reversing the trend, and to gradually increase our defense spending as our economies recover. When you say it's time for the cutting to stop, does that also apply to the UK? I know uh, from my interaction with the UK government that it is strongly committed uh, to the 2% uh, benchmark. So I'm confident uh, that the UK uh, will stay above uh, 2% uh, defence spending. Well, that was NATO Secretary-General answering a question from James Hurst, who can join us now. Uh, James, what else did he say? Well, his focus was on, uh, essentially, the NATO summit that will be happening in Wales uh, in the autumn. And he said there were sort of three key parts that they, they had to, to deal with there. Uh, a responsible exit from Afghanistan, uh, working on collective defence and also on staying engaged globally. And it's this question of collective defence, which is where the money comes comes in. Uh, he says that they're, they're working on an alliance readiness action plan. They are essentially, to me, it sounds like you know, NATO is going through its own defence review of what it can already do, uh, how it can perhaps use what it's already got better, how it can respond more swiftly. But he said... We've also got to improve capabilities. So things like intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, he suggested, missile defence, cyber, precision-guided munitions, air-to-air refuelling. Now, this is all stuff that, to an extent, has been talked about before, but I haven't heard him ever be quite so stark and blunt. Mm. And, you know, as the it's time to stop cutting, not only is it time to start, stop cutting, 
we then need to, when we can, go into the reverse cycle and start building up. Professor Paul Rogers, um, if uh, the Secretary-General is kind of launching his own sort of NATO defence review, what kind of state do you see NATO in financially and its capabilities? In its capabilities, because there's so many different countries, uh, they really are quite disparate. But you've got to put this in a wider perspective. If you take Russia, the Russian economy is about the same size as Britain's, far smaller than Germany's, and about the same size as France. We tend always to visit, to view Russia as the Soviet Union of the Cold War era. It's very different from that. It has increased defence spending a great deal, but from an extraordinary low base. And what I'm really getting quite concerned about is we're moving back into an era of a kind of new Cold War confrontation. Now, Putin doesn't help, in fact, is the major part of the problem. But I think you've got to be very cautious about seeing this so much in military terms. James, um, looking ahead to, to the conference that's coming up in Wales, did you get any indications of way, the way that's going to go from what he said today? No, I mean, I think it, well, the, the, the indications were that actually there were going to be some... some fairly difficult conversations, at least, um, because there are going to be a, a, a lot of plans, like this uh, Alliance Readiness Action Plan, a review of defence plans and also threat assessments, exercise schedules, that NATO is working up between now and the summit. Now, obviously, it's not going to do that in isolation, but it's going to want agreement on those things. And again, it, it, unfortunately, it, I'm going to take it back to this point of of money. The reason he is saying this is because he's going to want to try and get some commitments at the NATO summit in Wales, I think, on increasing to spending. Not so much, the, you know, the UK is actually in NATO's good books on this, but it's, for the UK the question is whether or not it can cut further. But for other nations, they're going to be looking for them to come mm. up with, with money to, to commit to these new plans. And I think, you know, it, it needs the political will behind it as well as the money. And James, did, did he say anything about Iraq in his speech? Yeah, he was, uh, he, he meant, made mention of Iraq. I mean, he's saying Ukraine was more of a, a wake-up call. And you, you mentioned Iraq and he said, look, you know, we are here to defend Alliance members. But clearly it is of a concern to NATO. But he, he, he said he's saying the same sort of thing as you're hearing from, from Washington and from London, that the real solution here is about a, a, an inclusive Iraqi government. And that's what it's got to be worked towards, that actually militarily he sees the options as, uh, you know, to, to do anything effective as fairly limited. Christopher Lee, um, he's meeting uh, Prime Minister David Cameron as well. What do you think they'll be talking about? Well, they want to know how far the, the, the British assessment is on Iraq. And what would we do? How much would, would we support? Have we got any way in which we can put the screws on Maliki to get his side of it organised and whether there's any likelihood, and there isn't any likelihood, of a British uh, 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 confrontation. The other thing to remember, of course, that the, the, the NATO conference is in Newport in Wales. Newport in Wales is in the United Kingdom and, and the British have a, 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 and uh, the Secretary General have a, a great deal riding on this. But when he gets back to those figures, you know, as James says, we're in the good books at the moment. We're, you know, we've already kept the 2%. There's only about three or four nations have ever done has ever ever done this and it's just say uh, and as paul rogers just said well, uh, you know 50 percent for the russia don't be scared the stories around they start from a very low base and so a lot of these figures you have to read them very 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 carefully and the final thing defense ministers including philip hammond his biggest mate is putin because what putin's been doing with the uh, ukraine 
has actually booted the case, mm-hmm. uh, boosted the case for not making any more cuts. Professor Paul Rogers, um, d- defend, uh, the uh, Secretary-General of NATO is obviously stepping down later on this year. What, what do you think he will look at as his legacy? Uh, a very difficult period, I think. Uh, he, he, I think, will be quite content in some ways, but I think external analysts really want to take a very close look at the whole NATO picture in Afghanistan, what it meant, uh, why bluntly it went wrong, uh, and essentially whether NATO should be doing a much more basic rethink. I know this is a bit of a beer my bullet, but, you know, mm. one of the biggest issues for the next 20 years has nothing to do with what we've been talking about. It's climate disruption, uh, which could have a catastrophic effect, particularly across the Middle East. And NATO, at least should be taking that seriously if it's serious about long-term defence. All right, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you very much for your time today. This is BFBS Sigrep. This week it was suggested the army relaxes its rules on tattoos so it can recruit more soldiers. The idea comes from Capita, the company who run army recruitment, in response to the fact that more and more people are getting them done. But not all tattoos are equal. There are civilian tattoos and military tattoos, as Lieutenant Colonel Mike Shervington, the commanding officer of 3Para, explains. The fashion of military or of military art on your body has now become um, fulsome across the whole battalion. People like to have cat badges here, cat badges here. They like to have the number three tattooed in all sorts of places uh, because they're very proud of belonging to this battalion. And is there a rite of passage as to which tattoos you can put on when and where you can put them? Um, There is a rite of passage. They say you're not meant to have them on in your first year or your first six months. And if you get one before that, then then you have to basically um, absorb a bit of banter. Um, but eventually, uh, pretty much everyone gets your parachute regiment uh, tattoo, certainly amongst the soldiers, uh, on your right arm. You say all sorts of places. Where have you heard as the uh, most daring place that um, someone's got one? If we had to one. broadcast this over <laughs> after midnight, I could tell you, but I'm, I'm sure we won't have to. That was Lieutenant Colonel Mike Shervington, the commanding officer at 3 Para. Uh, Christopher, still with us from Perugia, I, t- I take it. I didn't know the significance of tattoos in the army. What do they do in the Navy? Well, it used to be a rule that uh, until you've got a badge uh, when you, every three years you get, you get a stripe on the arm and there's a badge and three badge means you've been to 12 years for example but until you've got that first badge looks like a Lance Corporal's uh, uh, sort of V sign that doesn't sound right does it but that's, you know what I mean <laughs> go on the, uh, uh, until you got that you were then mature enough for a tattoo now, the Navy sort of usually put the things that everybody expects the Navy to put on their arms mm. uh, and nowhere else. And that's the, that's the fascinating thing. Uh, anchors, uh, mermaids, and inevitably, inevitably, uh, a heart uh, with arrow through it, the Doreen or something like that. The problem is the Navy in those days used to go away for a long time and Doreen may not be there <laughs> when... Jack got battens back, and so the Navy's always viewed its tattoos as sort of very military stuff, rather than uh, rather than sort of love symbols. What do you What do you think of this idea to relax the rules on tattoos to recruit more soldiers? Oh, Is it going to make any difference? No, it's not going to make any difference at all to recruit soldiers. I mean, the guys that are going to. But join there are the some people. Are, anecdotally, there are some people who said that they wanted to join up, perhaps in the reserves, not being able to because they had the wrong kind of tattoo on their hand. Uh, yes, but it's usually sort of love written across the knuckles or something like this, which which doesn't quite go through the sort of uh, uh, the uh, uh, the rights of the selection board. Now, I tell you what, the, the thing about the tattoo, 
And I think it's brilliant in, in the services, but it's when it starts to get out of hand, like the, the, the Beckham tattoo hmm. uh, sort of style, where it's, it's, you know, the, it's the body smother. Uh, and then the it, soldiers sort of look at each other, and I suppose the others do as well. And commanding officers say, "I wonder, you know, if I wonder if I can rely on that guy. I mean, he's over tattooed <laughs> entirely. Uh, military tattoos are usually pretty simple." So you, you haven't got a body smother then? Uh, yeah, actually, I have. <laughs> Uh, all right, let, let's move on to, to other business around this week. <laughs> what else What else can we look out for, Christopher? I tell you something in the future, and it's sticking with the Navy for a bit. Uh, Chatham Dockyard, um, which is now a historical dockyard in, in the Medway in the Kent, on the Kent coast. Um, Navy at the First World War. People talk about the, the First World War, we sort of talk about, don't we, the Army. The Air Force wasn't in, uh, wasn't formed then, not until 1918, although the Flying Corps was there. But Navy suffered a heck of a lot. And then Chatham next month, so in time for the school holidays, um, is putting on a huge exhibition mm. on, the, on the Navy at war, leading up to the biggest, one of the biggest battles ever, the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Christopher, um, you've got a little bit more time there in Perugia, haven't you? Just tell me what you're going to be doing with your military thinkers out there in Italy. This is a military political group, and what basically happens is you bring the military and the politics uh, politicians together, and some other people, which are fascinating. Uh, we're talking Middle East, we're talking Iraq, we're talking about the politics of it. The people who have an enormous input into this mm. are some of the commercial people in the Middle East, especially the oil men. They know the intelligence. It's their future, it's their existence, it's their share price. And so these are the guys which, you know, we, we, we sort of wander around, we talk right. to the military about this colonel but the bloke to talk to all always right. is the all right th that's all we have time for this week my thanks to professor paul rogers and to christopher lee if you'd like to join the debate we're on twitter you can follow us at bfbs sitrep remember you can listen again on website bfbs.com slash sitrep goodbye Sport, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio.